Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend. So we can go in many directions on the subject of travel with children, um, but let me just kick it off to begin with. Um, when we used to discuss the subject of travel pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, it was a very different conversation. Um, and now we have people that have governmental restrictions on travel. You have people that have, of course, what pre-existed COVID, which was the concern about taking children to places that are dangerous. But as a result of COVID, you have those saying, I don't want my child going to visit my in-laws in China or in other parts of the world where there's continued to be a sense of concern with respect to the safety and the safety protocols there. And then, of course, we've got the subject of travel, which obviously has always been an issue between separating parents as to whether the children are capable of being apart from another parent. So I'm going to invite you, Leanne, to take a stab at that or any of the other topics of travel that you may have thought about, given that you recently did travel as well. Yes. Um, I mean, certainly I find travel issues are something that come up um, often enough with clients um, because, you know, most parents at some point want to take their children on a vacation. And usually, you know, that might mean going to a different part of, you know, the country or outside the country altogether. So it is something that comes up. And one of the issues um, that, you know, arises as well is the travel documentation. Because generally, um, you know, a parent cannot take a, a child outside of Canada uh, without the consent um, of the other parent. And so, um, you know, one of the things that comes up is getting, you know, the traveling parent needing the other parent to sign a notarized letter, um, you know, saying that they agree or consent to the child traveling with them on these dates. And so that's something that, um, you know, gets raised and sometimes uh, parties who are, you know, into power and control and that sort of thing, you, you will play games a little bit with providing that uh, to their former spouse. So that's certainly, that's something that I've had to deal with with clients on a number of occasions. And, you know, just on the issue of travel, um, you know, one concern, you know, sometimes very legitimately that people have is that they're concerned that, it, you know, to, if a parent wants to take a child to certain jurisdictions, like say, for example, they have family or roots in the Middle East, and they want to take the children, you know, to visit family, um, you know, somewhere like that. And it's a country where, um, you know, Canada, um, you know, does not have, um, you know, we, we don't have this, The if a parent takes a child there and, and decides not to return, um, you know, in Canada with certain countries, we don't have that sort of arrangement where the, the Canada will, uh, you know, help some, a parent, um, you know, get the child back and where somebody can be extradited and, you know, potentially face abduction charges here for removing a child. So that's probably one of the most serious concerns that comes up. Um, you know, with some families where they are concerned about a child being removed and not coming back. Have you ever had cases like with that issue? Yeah. Steve? So I'm going to comment on the subject of international child abduction in a moment. I, I had 
um, a recent case of that that uh, not only went to trial but ultimately went to the Court of Appeal. Um, so I'll speak to the subject of child abduction in a moment. But um, I find something very curious with respect to this concept of travel consent forms. Now, I want to preface this by saying I'm not an immigration consultant, nor do I understand enough about the laws with respect to uh, crossing an international border with a child that is your biological child. But I can tell you this, in all the years that I traveled with my children when they were minors, when um, I did travel, I would then have their mother sign a travel consent form. And then, of course, as a lawyer, I would notarize it. I would make it look nice and official. I'd get to the airport or I'd get to the border at Buffalo, and I would have it in hand, ready to show. Nobody asked for it. And so it happened repeatedly that this occurred, that I would have it. Nobody asked for it. They would ask for the boarding pass at the airport and the passport. I would provide the passport and the boarding pass. Of course, my children have my last name, and it was never an issue. We got on the plane. We got to wherever we went. Oftentimes, it was just either, either the U.S., like Florida, or Mexico. Now, having said that, every separation agreement and almost every court order that we've ever dealt with with respect to future travel planning includes a clause that says that the uh, non-traveling parent will sign a travel consent form to permit the traveling parent to go with the child on the approved travel vacation. When I say approved, obviously, if it provides specifically that there is an allowance of travel, for example, every summer for a week or at Christmas time, then that's a sort of a pre-approval. But there still is this so-called requirement for a travel consent form. But when there are cases where somebody says, hey, you know what, I want to take the kids uh, for a week to Disney World and they're going to miss two or three days of school, that's a situation where it actually disrupts the parenting schedule in the court order and requires approval before somebody can go ahead and do that. In the vast majority of cases, the parents are, are, are harmonious and cooperative and what goes for one goes for the other. So, you know, if you start playing games, not allowing one person to travel with kids, Next time around, it's going to come back and bite you. So what we lawyers often do is we encourage appropriate, responsible, reasonable travel with the kids, even if that involves missing a couple of days of school, because overall, um, it's for the happiness and the benefit of the family unit. And it goes both ways. Now, what about situations where the parents uh, don't agree, um, whether it's because one parent feels very firmly that the children should not miss school, or they don't agree with the destination, or they don't agree to miss up missing their time, whatever the case may be, or what I said a few minutes ago about COVID and the restrictions there. In those situations where people cannot agree, they either mediate it, or they go to a parent coordinator, or they go to a court, they go to a judge, and the judge rules on that. And in cases where there's a ruling, uh, you often don't need travel consent form, because you now have a court order or a separation agreement that gives you that uh, authority to travel. But in situations where um, there um, is no such court order or written agreement with pre-approval to travel. This notion of the travel consent form comes in, which as I said a, minute, a, few, a few minutes ago, I, I am actually not certain that there is a legal requirement to have a travel consent form. Now, I don't want all of our viewers to think that they go ahead and travel willy-nilly without the children because the travel consent form is really another, another piece of evidence to prove that both parents allow this child to cross an international border. And so it's, it's relevant in that respect, but is it absolutely 
legally necessary to present such a form at the border or in an airport? My personal experience is no, but I don't know. I was just going to say, I've never been asked to produce one, but I can say that my ex-husband has. Um, we were very young when we split up. My children were very young, so um, that could have been part of the reason. I don't know, but he has been asked to present it before. Whether um, legally they're allowed to do that or not, of course, is another issue. But I think, you know, I would say for our viewers that I don't think it's a problem you want to run into. So it's better to just be cautious and have the travel consent just in case on that off chance you, you do get asked. Um, you don't want to be arguing about legal issues um, when you're heading off on a night. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but like you said, we have many cases. Sometimes we're called, you know, days before a planned trip because the other side did not sign the travel consent form. And, and, and oftentimes these separation agreements or court orders will say that it should not be unreasonably withheld. Yet, sometimes people are slow to respond, let's just say. And it causes anxiety to the traveling person. No different than, by the way, you're waiting for your passport to come back from Ca Passports Canada and you don't have it. And you've got tickets and you're looking to board a plane. So it creates unnecessary anxiety. And so the, the, the best practice here is plan early, um, get cooperation, prepare the travel cons consent form. You don't need lawyers for that. You can go to um, the Government of Canada website. They have a prescribed form for travel consent. You can download it, print it off, and get everybody to sign it. Um, and that way you are guaranteed to have no problems at the border because you definitely do not want uh, to arrive at the border or the airport. And then you get one very nasty border guard who says, I'm not letting you on the plane or cross the border without proof that the other parent has consented. So, so that's the travel consent form. Now, let's go to the other question that you brought up, Leanne, which is international child abduction. Now, it's not child abduction to travel with a child to another country. No. It's child abduction to try to change the habitual residence or the permanent residence of a child contrary to the other parent's agreement. And the Supreme Court of Canada doesn't hear there that many family law cases, but in the last year, they heard a family law case on that very issue. And it was a case, uh, it's initialized, um, and you can Google it and look it up. It's the Supreme Court of Canada uh, decision from 2022. Um, <coughs> and in that case, um, a couple um, had children uh, in Dubai, and um, the mother said to the father, uh, I'm gonna go visit a family in Ontario um, and upon arrival, she texted dad back and said, decided not to come back. And she immediately retained uh, counsel. Dad in Dubai retained local Ontario counsel. Uh, and local Ontario counsel asked for an order to force the return of the children. Now, the husband, father could not force the return of the mother wife but he could seek an order for the return of the children. Well, mother challenged that request and claimed that she and the children would be at risk of harm if returned. And so this went to the Court of Appeal and then it went to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that no, no, you cannot show up 
at a travel destination here in Ontario and claim jurisdiction here, what you ought to do is you should have gone to the courts in Dubai to get pre-approval to change the permanent residence of the children. And so it's a very interesting read. It's one of the few cases that goes up to the Supreme Court of Canada, but this one did. And it dealt with a situation where someone tried to reestablish jurisdiction and habitual residence of the children by claiming that going back, they would be put in harm's way. And uh, it's an interesting read. Why? Because when the mom here made allegations about returning home being uh, a situation of risk, um, the father, very smart, said, well, if that's so true, come back to Dubai. I will rent you a different apartment. I will pay for you to live there. That way you will be in Dubai with the children in your own residence. And that eliminated the ability for the mother to argue that being there would put her in harm's way because all the father was saying is let the courts in Dubai deal with it. And the courts in Canada confirmed that. Hmm. Interesting case. Um, and it is an issue that, you know, it doesn't come up. It's not something we see, you know, quite regularly. Um, but uh, I know, you know, it's certain, you know, people do have that concern because, um, certain, you know, as they say, if, if, with certain countries, it can be, especially countries where, um, say, men have Sharia more rights. Law applies. Yeah. Um, it can be very problematic for a woman in that situation. That's right. And so, interestingly, in this Supreme Court of Canada decision, it did allow a very small window, and it said that if the laws in the foreign jurisdiction um, are and I'm using my, my own language, radically different than the laws of parenting here, uh, a person could make an argument that the matter should remain in Ontario. Now, let's talk about the situation where it's the flip side. That was a case where a foreigner came to Ontario to try to establish jurisdiction here. But what about the case of Ontario families where one goes to another place, for example, Florida or England or Australia, and says the exact same thing and says, I, um, I am now here and I want to use, for argument's sake, UK law to remain in England. In a situation like that, the parent uh, who uh, is left behind, by the way, in the, in, in the uh, case law, it's oftentimes called the left behind parent. <laughs> um, so the left behind parent would be uh, uh, prudent to immediately retain counsel to immediately write a letter to mom or mom's counsel to say uh, the children's uh, place of domicile is Ontario. They are governed by Ontario law. You did not get permission to relocate outside of Ontario. And you would give them, say, 48, 72, five-day um, uh, window to return. And if they fail to return, then you can bring an emergency motion in Ontario court asking for the order of return. Now, this is where things get a little dicey for our viewers. You've got Hague Convention signatory countries mm -hmm. and you have non-Hague Convention signatory countries like the Supreme Court of Canada decision with Dubai. Now, where you've got a signatory, and by the way, anybody can Google which countries belong to the Hague Convention on the uh, international rules for the abduction of children. So whether it's a Hague or a non-Hague 
it's still smart if you're if you're dealing with an Ontario child to immediately run to court and seek an order. Um, if it is a Hague signatory country where the child is in, then the likelihood is even higher that the judge is going to make an order here. But the part that is the real kicker is the country who is a signatory to the Hague will enforce the Ontario order in the other jurisdiction. And that's not to say that the left behind parent isn't going to fly there to escort the children back, but it's not required because the authorities in the other country will enforce and implement the return order. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and um, if the country is a, a non-Hague country, then my understanding, and I haven't dealt with it specifically yet in my practice, is that, you know, it, it's going to help to have an Ontario order. But if you're not going to have a, another country enforcing it, um, it could be quite challenging to get the children back. And indeed, in the Supreme Court of Canada case, uh, the father could have gone to the Dubai courts and sought an order there. But at the end of the day, the order from the foreign jurisdiction, if it's a non-Hague signatory country, is not going to be useful in Ontario. So in the case that I refer to, that is a case where the father really had to swim in the Ontario pool and, 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 and get the order in Ontario that could then force the Ontario authorities to require the children to be returned to Dubai. Um, and by the way, if it were to be UK or Australia or United States, you would still go to the Ontario court and get such an order um, requiring the children to come back. And then you would have no problem enforcing it in the signatory country jurisdiction. So on the subject of travel, um, which, by the way, I, I love the word travel. The word travel makes me so happy because it, it, it evokes all of those positive feelings of, first of all, escaping Canadian weather in the middle of the winter. That's one. Two, it allows us to actually discover the way people live in other jurisdictions. So let's talk about that for a moment. Argentina. Argentina, just two years ago, legalized abortion. Argentina just about 20, 25 years ago, allowed no-fault divorce. It's not that long ago. And so what I find so interesting when I travel is I obviously many times try to find a lawyer who's local because I have all these questions I want to ask them, like, how do you do things here? Um, and, you know, what we do find, or at least what I found on my recent trip to Argentina, is that the uh, ratio of marriage is very low. Uh, more people get married in the United States and Canada than in Argentina, don't quote me on the numbers. Um, and that uh, speaks to a few factors. One, in terms of their socioeconomic behavior, um, things are really tough for most people in Argentina uh, and Brazil and Chile. Uh, financially, things are very tough. Of course, there's the 1% there, but uh, they, they have a really tough time, inflation is out of control there, and this drips down into the decision to have children. So there are fewer people that marry, uh, certainly more cohabit, um, they, uh, they have few children, um, of course, except for, you know, uh, you know for example, uh, ultra, 
uh, observant religious people, like for example, Orthodox Jews will have just as many children in Buenos Aires as they do in say, uh, Crown Heights, New York. But with the exception of those very small populations, uh, the family sizes are generally very small because the cost of living is, is, is so high and the cost uh, and the incomes are so low and the inflationary forces are so great. Um, but, um, but one thing is very clear from what I saw when I was there and interviewed and spoke to people and, and gathered from what I gathered there is that um, the parents are very bo both very involved in the raising of children. Um, and part of that is for the same reason uh, that it occurs in countries like Israel. Because of the economic pressures being so great, um, oftentimes in intact marriages or even common law unions, both parents work and both parents heavily rely on the grandparents to care for the children while both parents work. And in those cases where the parents split up, oftentimes uh, the children end up in a shared parenting arrangement with both parents because uh, in both cases, the parents were equally involved. It wasn't a situation like we find in the United States and Canada where you have a primary caregiver and then somebody that's oftentimes out of the house 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. I didn't uh, myself realize that the number of marriages was lower in um, some of these South American countries than it is here. So, um, it, you know, as you said, Steve, it's always interesting to see the different cultures and customs and, and laws, um, you know, in some of these countries when you visit. And uh, I'm you know, like you, I'm always a little curious of, you know, how family law matters are treated. And uh, so that's really interesting, you know, to hear that. And, it, it, you know, and it, it, it's again, like there's a lot of countries in this world where like the family unit, um, meaning also including extended family, you know, is very important to the, the raising of children and grandparents looking after children rather than children going to daycare and having nannies and um and then parents looking after their parents and their children. And we, you know, here in North America, we have a little bit less of that than, you know, some other if countries. Anything, we have a daycare epidemic where people cannot afford daycare, but that presupposes that we use daycare. Whereas in, uh, in the countries that I visited, um, daycare is not that common because uh, it's the parents, I should say the grandparents that are the daycare providers. Yeah. No, and I think there's something nice about that in a way that, you know, I'm keeping that, that there's that loyalty within the family and the, the idea of helping your family. Um, of course, if you have a, a completely dysfunctional, horrible family, uh, which, you know, people do, maybe that's not such a great thing. It sounds great in theory, but maybe sometimes in practice, it's not always ideal. Yeah, no, two, two small stories, and then we'll wrap up. Um, when I was in Buenos Aires, um, we stayed in a, in a residential area and uh, there was a couple schools around there and uh, school ends early uh, there. I think it was like two or three o'clock. And uh, it, it was funny because, you know, you go to a public school in Toronto at pickup drop off time. Sometimes uh, you'll see, you know, a parent, sometimes you'll see a, a nanny, a caregiver. Uh, there it was mainly uh, grandmas and granddads picking mm. up the kids. Interesting. Um, because I guess their parents were working. Um, the other thing is, uh, this has got to be the best, the best divorce story I've, at least I've heard in the last few months. I'm not going to say in my entire life. We had a driver in Mendoza, Argentina, who fortunately spoke fairly good English. And that resulted in him telling me all about his divorce. 
fine. He has two children, two girls, um, and they split up a couple years ago. Uh, but when they got married, uh, he owned uh, the house that uh, his wife moved into and that they ended up uh, living in as a couple. And uh, not a particularly nice house, but it had a nice piece of land around it, as did Men Mendoza, Argentina, is almost like Na the Napa Valley of, uh, of Argentina. Uh, the houses there sit on larger pieces of land than, say, in the capital of Buenos Aires. So when they split up, um, uh, they couldn't afford to buy one another out of the house. Um, and so the way they resolved it was that they severed the lot. And so um, his house sits on the same lot as the house that she built. Now, because his house was at the top left corner of the rectangle, she put her house at the back right corner <laughs> of the rectangle. And I asked him, how, how big is that? And we ultimately, through a little broken language and using meters and feet, realized that the land is about the size of two tennis courts. And so the two parents who split up ages ago, a couple of years ago, uh, live, are, are immediate neighbors to one another with no fence in between. The children go back and forth uh, fairly regularly, sometimes multiple times in one day. They'll have like lunch with dad and dinner with mom because dad's a driver he's got odd hours mom runs a uh, a massage therapy clinic out of the house um and so the kids go back and forth the grandparents obviously are involved in taking them to school and this and that um but you know when mom's got a boyfriend coming over boyfriend waves at ex-husband on his way in and vice versa <laughs> now that is crazy that is crazy. Uh <laughs> I said, what's the plan? He goes, well, once I make enough money, I'm going to offer to buy her out. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, it's almost like a, a weird nesting arrangement almost on some level. With a, it's everyone a little loves bigger... Raymond turns divorce. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that's a great story. Anyway, so that, that's it for this week. Traveling with your children. Make it uh, easy. Make it fun. Get the papers all worked out early and easily so that there's no issues and glitches. And uh, we wish everybody, just like Leanne and I had, safe travels should you be traveling. Yes. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you here again next week on Divorce Explained. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.